Well, howdy doody and welcome back to another From the Archives episode as we continue our journey through the epistle of James. Last week it was Matt Bounds speaking about the power of our words. So that means this week it's back to me and we're looking at truth and authenticity and carrying on exploring this sense, this idea that what we profess, what we believe affects deeply how we live our lives. Okay, Sammy, take it away. James chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such Wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, James, who wrote um, to Christians all the way uh, back in the first century, Lord God, encouraging them to live out the truth about Jesus Christ. Lord, to live as people who, by their deeds, by their actions, by their attitudes, by the, the way that they interacted with one another, Lord God, testified and bore witness to the fact that Jesus created, Jesus came Jesus was crucified, Jesus rose again, and he's now reigning. Lord God, help us as we continue to go through the book of James, to be a people who that message, that gospel message, uh, becomes realer and realer, Lord, not just in our minds or our emotions, but in our will, in our heart, in the things we do, in the way that we live our lives. Help us, we pray. Help us especially this morning, Lord God. Open our eyes so that we see. Open our ears so that we hear. Soften our hearts so that we would receive your word and be transformed by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are carrying on in James, and you'd be forgiven this morning if you thought, hang on a second, haven't we been here before? Haven't, haven't we done this dance already, James? Haven't we already kind of gone on about wisdom, you know, in some depth? And all of a sudden now we get into chapter 3, the second half of chapter 3, and you just write back where you started. There's, there's phrases, there's ideas, there's things that we find in chapter three, the second half of it, that we just think, ah, talk about repeating yourself, boy. What's happening? Well, rest assured, we haven't done this particular passage before, I hope. This isn't what Matthew preached on last week, was it? It was. This is awkward. I have to contradict him now. No, we haven't done this, um, before. And rest assured as well, it's not James just filling out James because he wants his epistle to be longer than the book of Jude. He wants it to be easier to find. He's not just writing verses for the sake of it so that he can get a third and a fourth and a, and a fifth chapter in. Actually, we, we see that this is kind of a turning point in the book of James. This is kind of like a linchpin moment in the, in the book of James where he, where he transitions from one kind of way of speaking and arguing and addressing to another. And he's doing two things here. Two things, and we're just going to look at them very quickly to begin with. He, he's recapping, before he moves on to kind of the second half of his letter, he's recapping and he's just making sure that people on board 
But as well, he's transitioning, he's changing from, from talking in one kind of sphere to talking in another. Let me show you that. Well, the reminder is uh, a pretty obvious one. He's reminding people um, about wisdom. He's, um, he's reminding them what wisdom is really like. If you have been with us the whole time, you'll remember that in chapter 1, um, the very first sermon, we looked in particular at the first couple of verses. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously um, to those who ask. And we made a big deal about it, and we've been making a big deal about it since. That actually one of the things that James wants for the church, despite the situation that they're in, is for them to be a wise church. To be a church whose mind is informed, whose heart is informed, and their lives are transformed. And so as he comes to the second half of chapter 3, and he's, a, he's about to go on and, and, and teach in a slightly different way, he's saying, right, hang on a second, let's just make sure everyone is up to speed. I've covered a lot of stuff since I mentioned wisdom all the way back at the start. Are you still with me? And it's a good question for us to ask. Even though we've been going through the book of James and we've been looking at wisdom, how wisdom is gospel truth applied to life, I wonder of us, wonder how this morning, if we wanted to kind of organize ourselves into wise people, how we'd go about it. How would we decide who was the wisest in church and, and who was the unwisest? You know, kind of, how would we line each other up? My guess is still, having been going through the book of James, having been looking at how wisdom is, is, is gospel truth applied in our life, it's lived out, we'd still probably think, well, the wise person amongst us is the one who's got something clever to say, who's got some kind of inspirational quote. Um, he's not here this morning, I don't think. I think he's, he's um, in the United States. But when, you know, oh, he's wise because he's, he's got a quote for everything, isn't he? He's got a clever way of saying something for everything. James! Oh, the book of James, he's wise because he's got something to say in all situations. If you said that to James, I think he'd really do his head in. I think he'd be really upset with you. Because we read, don't we, who is wise and understanding among you? How are we going to do this? Is it going to be who's got the cleverest things to say? Is it going to be the one with the greyest hair? We'll put the, the older folk one side and the younger folk the other side because wise people are definitely older than the young people. He doesn't say that. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by his deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James is, is at this point reminding people, let's not, we haven't gone too far. Let's not forget this. Wisdom isn't so much about the things that we can say, but about how we live our lives. James would say, don't judge me by the quality of my advice. Judge me by how I put it into practice. He's saying, remember, 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 before we go any further, wisdom isn't about knowing the right things even, or saying the right things, or feeling the right things. True wisdom, he says, is done and seen in doing the right things. It's, it's living life with the truth of the gospel plain to see. Okay? So that's the first thing he's doing here, and why it kind of feels maybe like we're going over all ground, because he's saying, whoa, stop. Before we move on, let's just make sure we're sure about this. Are you wise? Are you understanding? Well, then let's see it in your life. Let's see this gospel truth, the, the wisdom and the, and the understanding that you say you have. Let's see it in the way that you conduct yourself, the things that you do. That's the first thing that he's doing. The second thing he's doing is kind of changing direction. He's transitioning from what he has been doing in the first few chapters to the next. 
And think about what's already come before. He's kind of been uh, riffing, he's kind of been looking at, picking situation after situation in which the church hasn't been wise. He's kind of stepped back, looked at how they live their lives and gone, okay, I can see a few areas in which wisdom clearly isn't a strong point for you. The various aspects of their lives where the gospel truth that they say they know isn't being lived out. It isn't isn't being applied. He's gone after how they view themselves. That was the very first thing he went after, wasn't it? He's kind of stepped back and he's gone, whoa, you're not being wise there. You're still kind of judging yourselves by human standards. You're still judging one another by human standards. That's not wise. Judge yourself, view yourself, get your self-worth and your self-confidence from who you are in Christ. He's kind of looked at how they treat those with less, how they treat those with more favoritism and, and, and kind of ignoring people who are in poverty. He said, whoa, how do you treat one another based on kind of material wealth? That's, that's, that's totally not wise, guys. That's, that's, that shouldn't be how it's, it is. He's looked at how they speak to one another and their tongues. He's, he's kind of spoken about how their, their, their tongues are being used in an unwise way, how they're condemning one another rather than building one another up. He's been going for three chapters, three and a half chapters, basically. Guys, 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 you're getting it all wrong. I look at your lives and there's just so many areas where you are proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are not wise people. That's what he has been doing. Picking up on all these areas and showing them what they've been doing wrong and how they should be changing to live in line with the gospel, hasn't he? He's been given quite clear instructions. But what he's going to do... In chapter 4 and chapter 5, is he going to start actually trying to put right the damage that's been caused by the unwise living? Does that make sense? So he's kind of identified the things that they're doing wrong. And what he's going to do in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is say, right, okay, because of that wrong living, damage has been done. And this is how we are going to put it right in a wise, wise way. He's going to look at how people reconcile. He's going to look at people, how people solve disputes. He's going to look at how they can exercise patience with one another, how they can exercise patience as they're longing for, looking forward um, to the day of Christ's return. He's going, to, he's going to look at how they can put the past and things like that behind them and how they can move forward as Christians. He's going to speak about confessing to one another and being restored to fellowship. He's going to speak about leading those who have fallen away because of the unwise ways that they've lived and we together have lived fallen away from the faith, leading them back to faith in God. Chapters 1, 2, first half of chapter 3, it's James going, these are lots of ways that you are being unwise. Chapter 4 and 5 is going to be okay. Because of that unwise living, there are problems, and this is how we're going to put them right. Chapter 3 and a half, verses 13 to 18, is him saying, okay, let's transition. Let's make sure that we get that link between how we've lived in unwise ways and the damage that it's been, that is done. Basically, the second half of chapter three, if you look at it, is him saying what you've done has consequences. Your wisdomless lives have wreaked havoc and only wise living can put it right again. So let's actually look at that then. Let's have a look at how he unpacks unwise living and wise living and how he compares and contrasts two things in them really. One, where they come from and two, what they result in. Because he's trying to remind them what wisdom is true, positive wisdom. And then he's saying false wisdom is terrible. There's consequences. And that's where he's going to go in the rest of the letter. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. So he shows us, just like 
a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at faith. Do you remember we looking at faith and he, and he kind of picked out three different types of faith? Two he condemned, one he very much commended. He said, oh, there's dead faith, isn't there? You just know things, but no, nothing happens. It's terrible, it's dead faith. There was demonic faith, faith like the demons. Even they know the right things and they shudder. Oh, they're scared. They, they're repulsed by the truth about God. But what difference does it make, really? Ultimately, they don't worship him, they don't serve him, they don't follow him. But then he says, ah, there's, there's dynamic faith, there's doing faith, you know, where you know the right things, you, you feel a thankfulness, thank, thankfulness, a warmth, a response to the gospel truth, and then you live it out. In the same way, here in, in chapter 3, the second half, he kind of picks on two wisdoms, true wisdom and false wisdom. And, um, well, reread verses 15 to 17, um, where he, he's really lining the two up against each other. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I love the NIV here. Um, you don't get it when I read it. You speak it out. You've got to read it for yourself. But I love the way that it kind of captures James's tone by including the quotation marks, the bunny ears, around that first wisdom in verse 15. He's speaking, isn't he? Such wisdom. You know, he's just... Totally not having any of it. it. It's not wisdom in any sense of the word. It's false wisdom. It's unwisdom. It's oh, such wisdom. It's what he's been speaking about as harboring bitterness, envy, selfishness in your heart. It's not meaningful to call it wisdom, but it is like a wolf in sheep's clothing wisdom. We say it is, but really it's not. And what's the very first thing he, he calls out on that false wisdom? He says, false wisdom isn't from heaven, it's from somewhere else. It isn't from heaven, it's from somewhere else. And what does he say? It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Now that's quite a list, isn't it? It's, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. But what is he actually saying about this unwisdom, this false wisdom? This wrong wisdom, this wisdom, if you really can call it that. What's he mean? Well, let's have a look at those three words. It's earthly. What's he mean to think? And to say it in a kind of condescending, kind of condemning way, that wisdom is earthly. After all, don't we know that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? So to call that wisdom earthly, is that, is that really so so bad, James? That's, that sounds right, because the earth is the Lord and everything's in it. You know, we know that the earth is good. He's not saying that anything that has been made, the created order, things that you can touch, you can see, you can taste, you can smell, you can feel, you can hold. He's not saying that's all rubbish, is he? He's not saying only spiritual things are of, of, of good because Christ came in the flesh. Christ made everything. He's not saying that the material and kind of created things are bad. So what is he saying? But well, you can see from his tone that he's not saying it in a positive way. And really, what he's doing here is invoking the same kind of idea that we find when Paul is writing to the Philippians. And he speaks, again, in a negative sense about people who have their mindset on earthly things. Their mindset on earthly things. The two of them really are saying, 
It's an existence devoid of God. As if the earth, the created order, what we see, what we touch, what we smell, is all there is. This wisdom is earthly in the sense that it excludes God from the picture. It's a wisdom based on rationality, observations of just kind of touching, seeing and smelling. It it, is a wisdom that goes so far, but then excludes the one that has given us everything it looks at. It's thinking that creation is all there is and makes no reference to the creator. Such wisdom, he says, is earthly. It's everything except God. And that's a bad thing. False wisdom is looking at the world and saying, this is all there is. Now, where does that leave us? Does that make sense? It's earthly. This is all there is. Where does that leave us? And what's the second thing he says? He says it's, it's, it's unspiritual. What does that mean? It's unspiritual. Well, of course it's unspiritual because you've put bunny ears on it, James. Of course we know it's unspiritual. We're looking for spiritual things. He's basically saying it's a wisdom that doesn't come from anywhere other than man. It's a wisdom that comes only from man. It's a fleshy. That's the opposite of unspiritual. It's a fleshly. It's it's from people who um, haven't been inspired. It's from people who are still excluding. It's from people who think that they are the be-all and the end-all and have no interest in anything beyond themselves. It's non-inspired. It's not from outside us. It's just from you and me trying to figure it out in our own strength and our own power. And he says again, that's bad. He says it's bad. You know what? If your wisdom is based on all that you can figure out, then you're on shaky ground because you're not as great as you think you are. So often we think, oh, I've, you know, I've got it all figured out. I know the answers. Why? Because you've got a high IQ, you probably don't even have that high an IQ. You know, kind of globally speaking, there's probably very few people in this room, if any, who can truly brag in terms of intellect. And he says, you know what, all of our wisdom, even wisdom that we've passed on to one another and gleaned from each other, it's, it's, it's unspiritual. It's just from your flesh. And when it comes from our flesh, it's very selfish, isn't it? But we'll get on to that, sorry, I'm going to rush ahead. So he says, firstly, it's earthly, it's kind of excluding God. It's saying, you know, I only want to make sense of the things that I can see and touch and hear and smell, and I'm not going to even consider that there's anything more. Then he says it's unspiritual, and that is kind of us just on our own trying to make it in this world, you know, me against the world, I can figure it out, I don't need your help, or go on, then I'll take your help, I'm going to exclude anybody else's help. And then the last one, what's this last word? This is the one that probably catches our attention the most, but probably confuses us the most. He says, such wisdom is demonic, or in some translations, from the devil, or devilish. Dear me, what does that mean? What is he actually saying about false wisdom wisdom there? Well, perhaps he's saying two things. He's saying either or both of these. Firstly, he's saying, no, the reality is that there are forces Agents of evil who are trying to lead us astray. I mean, you read through the book of James, you read through the Bible, and, and, and kind of that, that realm, that world of, of spirits, of, of demons, of the demonic, which we kind of jettison, which we neglect and reject. You can't, you can't read your Bibles and come to the conclusion that that's not part of reality, can you? 
And he's saying something along the lines of, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, that these agents of evil, these people who are aligned with Satan, who, who want you not to be worshippers of God, they lead us astray. And they lead us astray in the area of our wisdom and our thinking. And really, when we come to the conclusion that, you know, that the earth is all there is, created things is all there is, or that the answer is deep inside of me as long as I can kind of figure it out and, and think it through myself, we've been led astray, haven't we? I mean, that's utter nonsense. To say that it's demonic is, is to be told that that such wisdom is being led away, distracted from true wisdom. Perhaps that's the first thing that he's saying, or, or the second thing maybe that he's saying, and I think he's probably saying both, is that because of its very nature, this wisdom excluding God, cutting God out of the picture and trying to figure out this world without God, he's saying all opposition to God and Jesus is demonic. That's just how he classifies it. If it's going away from God, if it's anything um, neglecting God without God, devoid of God, he's saying that is Demonic in and of itself, isn't it? It's, it's trying to live life in a world where God isn't who he is. So he's categorizing it in that way. I think it could be either him describing us being led astray or, or kind of just lumping us in with that kind of anti-God kind of thinking. But either way, it, it's, it's true, isn't it? Such wisdom, when we depend on ourselves and to the exclusion of God, is demonic. Now, I wonder if you're thinking to yourself, is that a bit strong? It's a bit strong, James, just because I'm not consciously thinking out the implications from God on every step. Am I really being led astray? Am I really living life like a demon? I, I mean, it sounds to me like you're going over the top, mate. Well, actually, and you find this time and time again in James, don't you? His language, uh, the things that he speaks about, the, the applications that James makes, is very much like Jesus. It's very much like the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, very similar here to the remarks that Jesus makes to the Pharisees when he says, do you know what? You guys are sons of the devil. That was what Jesus told them when they were going around with their wisdom. Such wisdom, if you could call it that. That really was, even though it kind of purported to be religious and, and worshipping and serving God, was devoid of the true God, the real God. It certainly was devoid of Jesus, the giver of life. And he says, you've been led astray. You're leading others astray. You're living life and you're, you're kind of understanding the world and explaining the world without the true God, without me, the source of life, the sustainer of life. You're sons of the devil. Your wisdom is demonic. Think about that list. The origins of wisdom, false wisdom, of the, the earthly, of the unspiritual, fleshy, of the devilish. And then listen to these words from Paul in Ephesians 2, see if it strikes any chords with you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's a Paul's description of someone who is spiritually dead. And it sounds very much like the origins of the false wisdom that James has put in the bed here, doesn't it? You read about 
the world, the earthliness. You read about the flesh and the unspirituality. You read about the demonic and the ruler of this kingdom and, and, and the spirit of this age. Paul's description of a dead person matches up, lines up shockingly, shockingly similarly to James's description of false wisdom. Which is why actually I think we can call false wisdom dead wisdom. It's wisdom that leads to death and we'll see that as we move on in a second. But if that's false wisdom, that's where false wisdom comes from. Where does he say true wisdom comes? What's true wisdom source? What does that look like? And actually, that's the wisdom that he's encouraging. And his description is very succinct. He says, it is wisdom that comes from heaven. It is wisdom that comes from heaven. True wisdom starts in heaven, he says, and works itself out from there. Now again, I think there's two senses that he means this. The first sense is this. True wisdom is heaven-sent. True wisdom starts in heaven. It's the truth about God which he reveals to us. It's wisdom and it's truth about Jesus, the world, and us all applied through scripture, made clear, and then illuminated to us through the Holy Spirit. Without that, we can't know the truth. How would we know that God created the heavens and the earth unless he told us? How would we know that we are separated from God unless he'd shown us? How would we know that there is a way for us to be right with God and to be right with God is the right way to be unless he'd shown us? We can't. We're blind. We're dead. We cannot see. We cannot hear. In order for us to be truly wise, remember wisdom is applying the truth about Jesus, gospel truth, applied to our lives. In order for us to be wise, we need to know that truth. And the only way we can know that truth is if he has shown it and revealed it to us. In order to receive that wisdom, it needs to come from somewhere else. It needs to come from someone else. And James says it's from heaven. He stated this already back in chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom on what you do, do you go off to university? I love you, I encourage you off, you know, go get one degree, two degrees, three degrees. No, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, because that's where it comes from. And then he's gone on and he said, you know, every good gift comes down from above. And Solomon, he wrote it all the way back in Proverbs. It is the Lord who gives wisdom. This isn't a new thing. This is how it's always been. If we're going to know anything, truly know anything, we need to have our eyes open to it by God. Without his revelation, we are completely and utterly in the dark. Now, I kind of touched on this two weeks ago when I was speaking about the wrong faiths and the, 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 the kind of the great world views that we've had in, in recent history of modernism and postmodernism. Modernism said, actually, do you know what? If you want to know something, go look for it, find it, you know, touch it, see it, smell it. That's modernism. I can know it because I can rationalize it and understand it. Postmodernism, saying that I can know it because I feel it. It must be true. It must be right because it just makes me warm and fuzzy inside. I mean, they both utterly nonsense, which is why we moved on from modernism as a culture and society and a globe and why we are moving on from postmodernism. But have you ever thought, well, what came before those? 
Before modernism and people thought, well, how can I know something? I'll go out and find it. How can I know something? I can go out and feel it. How did people know things? Well, they knew things because people told them. People who had authority, people who were trustworthy, told them. And wisdom from heaven is a trustworthy wisdom because it's received from above. It's received from beyond. We trust God's wisdom above and beyond our own because it comes from him who is a trustworthy source. We always make judgments over whether things are trustworthy or not. You'll trust certain news stories that you hear on BBC or something like that because you trust them. But then if someone just tells you something, you know, on the street or at the bus stop, you're thinking, oh, I wonder if that's true. Because, you you know, you're wondering whether you can trust them. The truth that we learn about God and Jesus, the world, about us, about sin, about salvation in the Bible, we trust it, not necessarily because it makes rational sense, although of course it does. We trust it not because it makes emotional sense, although of course it does. But we trust it because the one who's speaking it to us is trustworthy. Does that make sense? It's from heaven. Of course it makes sense. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be unrational. Of course it's gonna make emotional sense. It's not gonna make emotional nonsense. But we trust it mainly, primarily, because the one who is speaking is trustworthy. Because he's an authority on all matters. True wisdom comes from heaven. We know it because of where it's come from. But the second sense in which true wisdom is a heavenly wisdom is that it takes heaven and God and and Jesus, our creator, it takes that as its starting point and works everything out from there. So remember the definition or or the understanding of the earthliness of false wisdom? It's trying to make sense of the world to the exclusion of God. Saying, okay, well, the starting point is me. I'm stood here and I'm on a stage and I can touch and I can feel and I'm going to ignore God and I'm going to see where I'm going to end up. True wisdom, he says, that comes down from heaven is the opposite of that. doesn't start off with us. doesn't start off with what we can see and what we can touch. It starts off with God. It starts off with the reality of one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who together made everything, who blessed everything, who breathed life into everything who commanded man to, to, to name the animals in the garden, to work the garden, to love him, to obey him, to worship him. That's where it starts off, and it figures out the rest of the world in light of that. When we have the false wisdom, the earthly wisdom, the unspiritual, the man-centered wisdom, we start with ourselves, and really what we're trying to figure out is back in on ourselves, isn't it? We want to get back to ourselves. Well, how does the world make sense, and how does it affect me? Heavenly wisdom starts with God in heaven and really it's working everything out for him to remain there at the center. Comes down from heaven because Jesus is the start, the middle and the end of such wisdom. It's not done devoid of Jesus, but it's done entirely in the sphere of Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Can you see the difference between the two? How stark a contrast there is. True and false, you can't get further apart. And you can't really get further apart in terms of the wisdoms, can you? One is is completely devoid of God. It, 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 it's totally the other end. God doesn't even factor in it. This one, from heaven, ah, oh, it's from him, it's about him, it's for him, it's to him. But it's not just the origins. 
It's not just the origins that are different. And this is what he's, he's really going on to teach and how he's transitioning. Have a look at the effects, the implications of the, the false wisdom. Um, what does he say? He says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual and the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This is what he, this is the transition he bet. He's trying to show them you've been unwise, chapters one, two, and three, in these kind of areas, and it has consequences. It brings disorder, it brings hurt, it brings pain, it brings division, it brings chaos, it brings hostility. When we start with ourselves and try to figure out the world around ourselves and, and how we fit into the world, selfish. Because I'm the most important thing in that. You do the same. You do the same, and, 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 and we do it as communities and, and societies. We do the same. We, we pick ourselves as the center. Someone else does the same, and all of a sudden there's a clash, isn't there? Because we want the universe to be about us. You want the universe to be about you. I've come to wisdom about that. You've come to wisdom about you as the center of the universe, and then, boom. There's, there's worlds colliding there. There's, there's cosmoses colliding because I'm the center, you're the center. The two can't be true. There's hostility. There's division. There's pain. Just look at some of it. Verse 14. Bitterness, envy, selfish ambition in the heart. Evil practices. Denying the truth. Selfish ambition, disorder. That's what he's saying. That's what he's teaching. That's what we need to hear. Do you know what? When we cut God out of the picture, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. It doesn't help even if we try and form a brain trust amongst ourselves. You know, choose the three or four brainiest people we can in the church and let them go and figure it out. That's not what's happening on a Tuesday morning in Starbucks in Cross Hands, by the way, when the elders get together. It's not a brain trust happening there. Um, when that happens, there's just pain. There's just suffering. There's just hurt. There's just hostility. That's the implication and the, the way that it works itself out. It's just a mess. And that's why you can kind of understand what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 2, can't you? When he says, you people who, who live by the world, you know, who go by the flesh, who are, who are underneath the authority of the, the spirit of the ruler of this age. You're dead people. Because that's where it leads, is to death. To death, spiritual death and death and amongst our relationships and, and sometimes physical, literal death. It's not a good thing. Paul understands that. James understood it before Remur in, in the first uh, epistle that we find. The consequences are bad for now. The consequences are bad for eternity. It's just, it's just horrendous. Because life without God is not good life. But just as there are implications of the false wisdom, there's implications of the true wisdom as well. And what a camp contrast you get there. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. This is what Paul says. He says, For God is not a God of disorder. One of the things that we said comes from false wisdom. He's not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. Well, what do we read about true wisdom? True wisdom, then, first of all, is pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest, of righteousness. When God is big in our thinking, when the gospel is true to begin with and then we try to figure everything else around it, the 
consequences are peace. Not disorder, but order. Not hostility, but union, love, friendship, care, consideration. Now I can't help reading that list as he's describing true wisdom and not not thinking about some other famous lists in Scripture. The, The list that we read about love, the list that we read about the fruit of the Spirit. Let me just read them out to you. Love is patient. Love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it isn't self-seeking, it isn't easily angered, it keeps no record of long, it doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth, it protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. You see it, don't you, that when God is in our lives, when Christ is central, when we are filled with the Spirit, when we are made alive in Christ, when that is revealed to us, when we know this truth and we live it out, that's what it looks like. The Christian is someone who is Spirit-filled, wise and loving. When we have Christ in us and we're living like Christ, then you get these words of overflow that are true. True wisdom that comes from heaven, putting him first, what he has done first in the driving seat when we try and make sense of the world, that true wisdom leads to wonderful things. It leads to reconciliation. It leads ultimately to peace. And it isn't any wonder, is it? That when we live as if Christ is real, as if he has come into the world to die for sinners and to rise again, to to take us into heaven in his body, It isn't any wonder that when we live like that, peace is the result. Because who is Jesus? He's the Prince of Peace. He's the one who came to bring peace. Not enmity, not division, not fighting between God and man and between man and man. That's where wisdom leads because that's where wisdom has come from. He says here, doesn't he? Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it doesn't feel like when we, when we follow Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, when we live our lives as if Jesus is the ruler, that peace is all that we get. That's not what we're promised either in, in the day to day. Um, sometimes, oh, you think, do you know what? If I just kept my mouth shut about Jesus in this situation, then there'd be no, there'd be no quarrels at home with family. There'd be no issues in work. You know, Sam, Jesus and the gospel doesn't bring peace, just causes headaches. That's why I love the language he uses there right at the end in verse 18. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. He's looking at the long game, isn't he? He's saying, do you know what? In the, in the today, in the tomorrow, in the this week and this month, maybe there are problems, there are issues that are going to be need to be worked out. And there still will be hostility and division. They'll still be the result of your false wisdom, of your sin, of your hurting others, of others sinning against you and hurting you. He says, do you know what? In the long run, this is the fruit. The fruit doesn't come instantly. The fruit comes after time. And he says, ultimately, this is going to be about peace. This is going to bring peace. This is going to bring reconciliation. This is going to bring righteousness. Jesus came to bring peace. And he has brought peace. And peace is there and it's on offer and it's available for anybody who trusts in him. Peace between man and God. He's come and he's he's paid the price. And we can have peace with God through him. But as well, he's come to bring peace between one another. That all of a sudden we're not each the centre of our little universes, ready to collide. But actually our lives now serve a common purpose, a common reality. 
We see the world for what it truly is. That Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the saviour of all things. We have a common goal to glorify him, to praise him, to worship him, to see his name and his kingdom and his glory spread. We might still clash. Do you know why we'll still clash? Because we still live most of our lives with false wisdom lenses on. We still live most of our lives as if we're the centre. James says, come on, guys. Put Jesus in the driving seat. Put the one who brings peace in the driving seat. And and trust me, there will be peace. There will be impartiality. There will be mercy. There will be purity. There will be consideration. There will be love. There will be submissiveness to one another. There will be a harvest of righteousness. Those are all things that you just think, yeah, do you know what? That's Jesus, isn't it? That is what Jesus brings. And he's saying true wisdom is taking Jesus and living it out. So, let's get our heads, let's get our hearts, let's get our lives living this reality then. Living it out. True wisdom that goes further than our words, but goes into our actions. Who is wise and understanding about you? Let them show it by their lives and their good deeds. We all have wisdom. The question is, is it true wisdom? Is it false wisdom? Is it wisdom that brings death or is it wisdom that brings life? Does it bring harmony and peace? True wisdom comes from above. We trust it because the one who has spoken it to us is trustworthy. It's about him. It's centered on him. It's not from us to God's exclusion. Truth that comes from God is not about us. It's about him. God opens our eyes and helps us to see that, that Jesus is reigning, that he's made peace. And that we can have peace with one another. What a difference. We're going to celebrate communion now together. And this is, is, is just one way of, of preaching to ourselves and preaching to each other. that This is true. That Jesus has come. That this is a reality. We physically take uh, the juice and the bread as representations of his, of his body and of his blood. To say, do you know what? Touch the world. You know, it, it lines up. It lines up with the truth that we read in Scripture that Jesus made everything, has come to to save and to redeem and to renew everything, and will come again. It reminds us of his body that was broken, of the way that he entered into false wisdom. He entered into everybody, center of their own universe, which brings hurt and pain and suffering and, and evil and injustice and favoritism. He entered into that. Uh, and in that entering in, even though he was perfect, he paid the price, he paid the consequences. His body was broken, his blood was shed. So that the enmity and, the, and the, 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 the division between us and God could be done away with. That peace could enter in. In one sense, it's, it's in a horrific meal to take, isn't it? You know, of, of, of a broken body, of a shed blood. But it's what comes from this meal that we're celebrating this morning. The peace the reconciliation, the the order, the harmony that comes between us and God and between one another. And we do it physically to remind ourselves that this has come from heaven, that this is true wisdom and this is what we we want to be living out day by day by day. I'm going to pray. The bread and the wine are going to go out and the band are going to come up and we're going to to sing a new song over that, which is a, a song of really responding to what Jesus has done on our behalf. And then when we finish that and you finish the communion, um, we're going to stand together. And we're going to-